So today we are meeting with Governor Gary Herbert. He was the former governor of the state of Utah. It's a terrific interview. Chad, we just actually wrapped up the interview. We're, we're filming this little intro beforehand. People don't know that when we got off this interview, he spent another probably 20, 30 minutes with us just chatting that we didn't record. So, but Chad, tell us what we're gonna hear in the today's interview with Governor Herbert. Man, just super unique to have a governor of a state, not only that, but the governor who presided over a state going from the doldrums of 2008 financial crisis to being the number one financial state in the country. He talks about the importance of sports. He talks about the importance of listening to the right voices and how to tune out what you need to tune out and listen to those that you need to listen to in leadership. He talked about some of the things going on right now in our country with uh, vitriol and and hatred when we asked him about our compete without contempt principle. And man, he shared some just enlightening insights into what's going on in our country right now and why we are becoming so tribal and how to overcome that. It was one of the favorite conversations I've had in my whole life. I'm excited for people to hear it. Well, let's jump into it. Today's podcast episode of the Sportlight with Governor Gary Herbert. Welcome to the Sportlight Podcast for parents, coaches, and athletes. The Sportlight refers to the time in an athlete's life when they have increased ability to affect the culture around them and the increased opportunity to learn life's lessons through sports. This podcast aims to help parents and coaches capitalize on their athletes' precious time in the Sportlight. The Sportlight Podcast is brought to you by Especially for Athletes program. So, Governor Herbert, thank you for joining us here on the Sportlight Podcast. I want to hop right into a question about economics. I first met you at an event with uh, that you, you did with my brother Ryan Smith and Mitt Romney, and this was several years ago. And that event was discussing primarily finance and economics, not only in in uh, the United States, but specifically Utah. I'd like to ask you, along that same vein of economics, we we speak with and work with a lot of people in the athletic sports industry. Um, I recently read that a a Utah Jazz game will bring in on average around a million dollars a game for the Salt Lake economy between the restaurants and hotels and things in the area, as well as all the business that happens, obviously, at the stadium or the arena. Um, During your time as governor of Utah, I assume that sports – uh, the Olympics have been here, some of the other things. What what did you see in, in the value of having such a robust, strong sports community in Utah? Well, you know, under the heading of tourism and travel, you know, it, how can you attract people to come into your community and participate? Uh, certainly an economic uh, driver. And uh, we started years before I came in as governor, but I kind of perfected, I think, on our watch, the Utah Sports Commission. Jeff Robbins, who's our executive director there, is my old tennis buddy. He was a two-time All-American at the University of Utah and played on the pro circuit for a while. But he's taken that sports commission, which was started way back in the days of Al Mansell and Mike Levitt, kind of in anticipation of the Olympics coming in in 2002. That's grown now. So they've, I think, have produced now over 500 different events that they've helped to sponsor or co-sponsor, helped to attract to come in the state of Utah. Uh, we're gearing up again for another Olympics in 2030 or 2034. And I think it's, it's, we're probably about an 80% chance of getting 
on one of those dates. And by the end of this year, it might be 100%. Uh, but that's the big granddaddy of them all is the Olympics. But we have, you know, whether it be the World Volleyball Championships or the high school championships that we have developed and, and are producing here, the um, – Oh, they used to have some uh, airplane races down over the Grand, or excuse me, the Red Rock countries down in southern Utah and Moab. Uh, the triathlon, you know, Ironman series, which we've held world championships in St. George, uh, and everything in between. I know we've got motocross coming up here, uh, which has been a staple in the state of Utah. They'll fill up uh, Rice Eccles Stadium for motocross. Uh, we've had skateboard championships. I mean, it goes on and on and on. Uh, our snow sports, we've got two of our uh, national federations, which are here, the Snowboarding Federation, the, the uh, Ski uh, Federation, now headquartered in Park City. So we, we're bringing world championships and competition uh, here in the state of Utah, which, again, people come to see. And it's, it's a tourism, travel, let's go to Utah, let's experience the greatest snow on earth, let's experience these events. And people come and spend money. So under economic development, the heading, there is a slot now for tourism and travel, which the Sports Commission fits in events that we are creating and bringing here. Um, I'm looking forward here in a couple of months to going up and playing in the PGA tournament we have here, which Tony Finau is now joined with us for his foundation. And that will be held up at Oak Ridge in the Bountiful area. Uh, we've done this for now like the last seven years or so at that location and again we get national exposure it's on television people talk about you know utah salt lake in the area show the mountains people get uh, interested in, in what's utah like they, they understand more about the people and the culture and they come and they're coming in droves it's right now our tourism and travel industry is over a nine billion dollar a year industry significant wow. economic development Wow, that's crazy. That's that's terrific. First of all, and I, we we grow growing up here in Utah. Um, I know you grew up in the American Fork area. Shad was grew up in California. Came over here about when he was twenty one or so, twenty two, right, Shad? Yeah. Um, sports really is a staple of our community. Anybody who comes here it doesn't take them very fast. To, probably the first question you get asked by the neighbor when they knock on your door is. Is uh, who you cheering for, BYU or Utah, right? Like yeah. it's and, <laughs> and and if you're a Lakers fan or something, then you get toilet paper that night. You got to be a Jazz fan. <laughs> well, we we coined the phrase Dustin and Chad uh, that Utah, the state of sport. I mean, yeah. that's the phrase Utah, the state of sport, and it's not just a slogan. It's kind of a culture. It's a way of life. Everybody yeah. participates in some kind of outdoor recreation activity i should say most everybody if you're not an active participant you're an active fan or supporter or cheer leader you know for whatever sport whether it be high school uh, it could be peewee mm -hmm. league you know uh, our professional sports with the bees uh you know the jazz of course and who knows what the future is going to bring but but we are really utah the state of sport and i know we're doing really well because we have now many other states trying to copy what we've done here in the state of Utah with our sports commission. So that's the biggest form of flattery is when somebody wants to copy you. Yeah. Amen. That's awesome. Governor Herbert, we've been anxious to ask you a few questions because of your experience. We have four key principles that we go around. We meet with all the high school athletes in, in Utah, many of them. 
a lot of the colleges and, and down to Pee Wee League. And one of the principles that we teach is compete without contempt, to compete without hatred. And though it's it's a different realm, politics can sometimes obviously become very, very nasty. But we haven't seen some of the same nastiness here in Utah that we've seen maybe nationwide. And I would just love to hear your insights on how is it that you can you can compete against someone in an election without hating that person and still have respect for them and still govern yourself by by principles that that you hold strong what have you learned as governor and and running for office that would help our athletes to compete against their rival without hating them well, that's a great question because politics does bring out uh, kind of the worst in us. And that's unfortunate. Maybe it's because the stakes are so high. Uh, the ability to be a senator, a governor, a congressman, uh, and even local elected officials, mayors and county commissioners and council members, a school board. I mean, when you have differences of opinion, sometimes those differences really um, become things to really have strong disagreement on and that becomes personal sometimes in your zeal to win election. It's always easy to justify. Uh, I've got to do this. I've got to run a negative campaign because if I don't win, I can't do all the good things that I've planned to do as an elected official. So it sometimes becomes a little bit of a cloudy issue and, and we do view the opposition uh, sometimes with too much contempt. Um, we've talked about this a number of times in Utah, and we may not be as bad as other states. That's the good news. The bad news is we are becoming like other states, and we contribute to the national uh, you know, uh, concerns of contempt. Uh, we support our candidates with such, such zeal uh, that we now have politics being referred to as a blood sport. Politics, the blood sport. It's the gladiators in there pummeling each other and drawing blood and saying things that are just nasty and mean and, and personal. Um, I worked with a guy named Tim Shriver, who's a solid Democrat. He's, you might not know Tim, you know, his sister, uh, who was married to Arnold Schwarzenegger, Maria Shriver. And he runs the special Olympics for the Kennedy family. He has a Kennedy. Ethel uh, uh, Kennedy was his mother. Uh, really a nice guy, and he and I first met him a few years ago, and he said, he says, Gary, I really long for the days when we had Ronald Reagan would sit down with Tip O'Neill, Republican president with a, a, a Democrat Speaker of the House, and say, what can we do together? And they worked together and created a very great environment for economic growth. They had the largest tax cut at the time. Uh, it spurred the economy. We had over the longest peacetime prosperity uh, we've had in our history, thanks to Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill that got together and says, yeah, let's cut taxes. The taxes are too high. It was, there were pay, people were paying over 70% of their income in taxes, if you can imagine that today. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that led to a great uh, relationship and getting good things done. Uh, and a kind of a bipartisan doesn't mean they changed their, their their principles or their policy or what they want to see happen, but they learn how to work together and compromise. And then he said to me, he says, I long for the days when your Orrin Hatch, Senator Hatch, would work with my uncle Ted Kennedy, the two lions of the Senate, and they would say, 
what can we work on together and get some things done? So I just sit here and fight. Nothing ever happens. It's a stalemate. Let's see if we can work together and get some things done. And because of that, uh, uh, what Tim has done is he's created uh, a group called Unite, which means can we come together and work together? Uh, let's understand that, that compromise is not a, a dirty word. Our founding fathers found it very successful in preparing the Constitution. That came about because of significant compromise. And we venerate those founding fathers as the brilliant men that they were. Uh, why don't we try to emulate that aspect of it? And they've also created what's called the Dignity Index. So rather than treat each other with contempt, let's treat each other with dignity. I respect your opinion. I disagree with it, but that's a point of view that needs to be talked about and considered. Let's, that's what we're doing. And this Dignity Index it goes from one to eight, uh, where one is you have just full-on contempt and and your opponent is slime and should be worthy of being in the same arena with you. It's number eight, which is have you express extreme appreciation for their different points of view and their contribution as a human being to our discourse and, and recognize they would be a good elected official too, just like you would be if you got elected and had the opportunity to serve. So there, Utah was, a, was a kind of a, a trial basis for that to happen. And uh, and it worked pretty, pretty well. I think if something like that can spread around the country, our political discourse will become much more rational, uh, less emotional, and we'll get more things done in behalf of the people of America. That's going to be, uh, Chad, you may have a follow-up to that. But I, Chad and I talk a lot, uh, Governor, about this. We see it with the young people the that we work with. I've even had this conversation with, with business leaders over the years, the the immense amount of tribalism or feeling that you have to be part of a particular group. And even though 99% of what you believe in and, and think may be uh, the same as the other group, that 1% that's different means you can't associate with them. Um, and, and we see that everywhere from in religious arguments right now, there's with with race and ethnicity, with um, you know, uh, gay marriage for against it, like these different things. That, but why is it, and and how do we? I know this this dignity index you talked about. I would love to see the way to teach our younger generation the importance of you can disagree with people's opinions, but it doesn't mean you have to hate the person. Really, we're a lot more alike than we are different. And I, I too, I, I miss those days of political leaders sitting down and realizing that, I mean, they fierce, they battle, they'd argue, right? If you study the history of our country, there were fierce arguments over laws. I mean, there were fights over laws, but at the end of the day, they knew something had to get done and they'd make the decision for what's best for the country. But if, if you were talking to a group of young people what would be your message to them to how do we respect the differences in other people and still be loyal to our principles or maybe a party in the case of politics? Yeah. Well, it is something that needs to be kind of taught. It should come from your parents in your home. If you're, if your parents are acting like idiots and saying things that are just outrageous, uh, you know, that probably would shouldn't be too surprised if our children follow suit. And we see that in society all the time. Well, we, these kids are acting crazy, and then we find out, well, their parents are acting crazy. So it should start at the home. 
We teach our children about responsibility, civic involvement. That's why we got the Herbert Institute of Public Policy here at UVU, is to have our young people here understand it's important to engage. You need to be involved. Don't sit on the sidelines. We need to hear your voices. And there's a, a proper way to engage uh, with uh, respect for a different point of view and, and listen and with an open mind and try to get deeper understanding about somebody's opposing point of view. Maybe they've got some good points that you ought to consider. And the compromise maybe is a way to get something done. Half a loaf is better than no loaf. Although we have people in Congress that are just, you know, they wouldn't, they won't compromise. They won't give up anything. And consequently, nothing gets done. Now, I don't think that's really a good way to, to, to run the railroad. Um, I like Steve Covey. Our, who's a good mentor to so many of us over the years and talking about try to find the win-win. Find something that's mutually beneficial to both sides of the argument. And we can get some things done. And for me, if I could get a half a loaf, okay, we'll get that done and move that into place. And we'll move on and maybe get the other half a loaf or a half of a half later on as we continue to work together. Um, uh, an example of where we are just floundering is on immigration. The Republicans and Democrats all, all agree we have an immigration problem. Our borders are like sieves. People are coming, hopping over the fence. A lot of them, in fact, probably the majority, are people that come here appropriately and then overstay their visa. And, and so uh, we, what do we do? Well, what we're doing is politicizing the issue. So the Democrats politicize it for their benefit to help get minorities to vote for them because we we want to have open borders or less restrictions to have people come into the country. And the Republicans are saying we're getting overrun. We've got to protect our borders. They use it for their political needs, too. And consequently, nothing gets done. This is an issue that's been around since Ronald Reagan. That's back in the 80s. And, and we all know we can fix it. And we ought to just sit down and do something. But both sides use it for political weaponry. I was with President Obama one day, and we were talking about immigration. And I said to the president, I said, you know, it's a problem we have here. We ought to solve it. And he says, well, you should. And I said, well, Mr. President, we tried to in Utah to take a state approach. We had a way where people could be in society and, uh, you know, pay their taxes, come out of the shadows, and participate until such time as the federal government, which has the responsibility, would find some reason to deport them or, or take them out. And uh, he, I said, you sued me. You sued the state, and we and you won because the, federal, the court said the federal government is in charge of immigration, not the states. Okay, I understand that from a legal standpoint, but then you end up trying to do it by executive order. You tried to do the other side by executive order, and you got sued. And you lost. And he says, yeah, the fact of the matter is we can't get the Congress to act. That's the problem. I said, no, it's the problem, but we're attacking the wrong side of the issue. It's not the fence. It's, it's, it's not the wall. You put it. We've got to fix the gate so people can come and go. I was raised in Orem uh, with all the fruit farmers that we had here. We had a lot of migrant farm workers would come in, help pick with the fruit, work on the farms, then go back to Mexico or south of the border, wherever they were coming from, and enjoyed their stay here, made some money, went back home. Now they come they come and they stay because they're afraid if they go back home, they won't be able to get back in. So we've got to fix the gate. If you talk to Americans that have married uh, 
a foreigner and bring them into the country, they will tell you how much of a problem it is to get through that gate and the problems associated there. So uh, we, we like to fight about it. We find a political advantage on Republicans and Democrats alike, and consequently the problem doesn't get solved. And the people of America suffer. Yeah, we, we just talk in circles. Yeah, I, I love the leadership principle that before you get critical, get curious, really see where someone's coming from and and why they have the strong stance that they have. And if if both sides of an issue or two teams in, in sports, if they get curious about one another and learn about one another, the hopes and desires before they become knee jerk critical, then then we could probably have some answers and come up with some solutions. And, and that's a great lesson to all of us, I think. Yeah. Well, it's a matter of just wanting to do something and, and do it in a way that's not offensive to everybody. You know, some people like the, the notoriety they get, the headlines they get. We know cable news has probably been one of the worst things for us as a society. We've become siloed. If you're a Republican, you listen to Fox News. If you're a Democrat, you listen to MSNBC and maybe CNN. And, and what do they do? They stoke the fires of contempt. They say outrageous things. They only look for the negative, so they get more hits. More people watch their TV shows. Uh, if it's, if it's uh, uh, newspaper, TV, more people willing to watch their newscasts. It's, it's how they attract and make money. And unfortunately, there's some irresponsibility attached to that. We're seeing that play out now and some of the problems we see with cable news. They're, they're playing for the ratings rather than being journalists and being responsible in what they report and making sure that you know, the, the phrase that Fox News used to have was, we report it fair and balanced. We report, you decide. That's a, that's a good mantra. Every station ought to be doing that. And unfortunately, Fox drifted to, well, we're going to report the, all the Republican side of the issue and be an advocate, help Trump get elected. And uh, that's tr proven to be a, an unfortunate situation for us uh, where we can't trust the news anymore. Hmm. I've had a hard time with the news. I, 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 all of them. I can't turn them on. I, I get, I, I find myself becoming um, anxious or just upset, not trusting any of them. So yeah. I just, I don't know where to go to just get news, just to get the truth. Well, we, we would hope that the public will rise up and say, listen, we don't have to have you think for us. We're smart people. You report the facts of the event, of the news issue, whatever it is, just report the facts. And, and that means all the facts, pros and cons, and then let us as a society, as individuals, make a determination on what we want to see happen and how we'll react to that information. Uh, we need to get everybody to, to agree to be a journalist of top quality as opposed to an advocate and, and have your biases be shown through in your, in your reporting. And we see it. We have newspaper editorial pages that are more liberal, uh, others are more conservative. Uh, and the slant that they put not only in the editorial page, but now in the news reporting is palpable. And it's not healthy for us as a society. I wanted to lead in on the mental health aspect of some of this, Shad. I, I you know, the more we started talking about that, I started thinking about some of the some of the parents and some of the kids that I that I've spoken with, even some of the university kids down at 
uh, Southern Utah, I was speaking to uh, 100 or 200 or so of the athletes down there. And the number one thing that they had questions about was how do we, uh, the, the, the fact that their mental state was more concerning to how they were performing than their physical condition was. Physically, they felt fine. It was the mental stress that they were dealing with. And I think that we have kids that are being brought up now where if they do turn on the news or if they do sit down to your point earlier, governor, about the, the, some of the crazy parents, if they sit down at the dinner table, the, the, the truth that they're hearing that they supposed to be truth, they're supposed to trust these adults is so one-sided and so radical that a lot, I have to oftentimes remind these kids that the world's not as bad as we tell them it is, that there are things that need to be fixed in the world, but there's also some great things in the world because they're extremely anxious and, and uptight and afraid that the end of the world's coming, that World War III is going to happen tomorrow, right? Because of Ukraine and Russia and it, it stresses them out. Um, the, the mental health world, Governor, we, we talk a lot about this current generation being referred to, we refer to them as the I generation. <laughs> There's studies that show that kids born after 2007 or around 2007, the year that the iPhone was invented, iPods, iPads, I everything, right? This I generation that when they graduate high school, they will have had half as many conversations with other human beings as the generations before them had before the internet, before iPhones. Because of that, socially, their brains are three years less experienced or less developed. So an 18-year-old senior has the social brain or, or experience of a 15-year-old, which leads to the studies showing less 18-year-olds moving out of the house, less 18-year-olds, uh, kids don't get their driver's licenses as early as they used to. There's more stress, there's more anxiety. Um, I know that you have had efforts because I followed them closely. We were hoping to get more involved. In fact, we still are with the state because of so much that we're doing behind the scenes with a lot of the kids here in Utah. We'd like to do more with the state of Utah here. But I, I know on the suicide awareness and prevention efforts that you are part of, the mental health, is that something that you've seen as well on the rise since you know your time as lieutenant governor to your time now? My guess is you have, and it's become a... <laughs> a subject that's crossed your desk more times at the end of your term than it did early. Well, thank you. There's a lot of things that kind of go through my mind as you express the concern that we all have about what is happening to the rising generation and the mental uh, pressures. Uh, we see it in the highest level of sports, you know, uh, uh, world champions in tennis are having mental breakdowns that have to get away from the game and can't compete anymore have serious issues. Um, uh, we had Andre Agassi come and, and speak at one of our Governor State of Sport Awards banquets one year, and I went down to Las Vegas and actually played tennis with him. And he gave me a book called Open, which was his kind of his history of his life. And, and he talked about in his book about the pressures his father put on him to become a, a, a great tennis player. In fact, his dad said, you don't need to go to school today. I want you to go down to the club and play tennis. Uh, he sent him, I shipped him off to Volatari's uh, tennis camp in Florida, which he did not want to go to. But felt like he'd been just shipped away from his home and turned pro because of that when he was like 16 or 17. Uh, and 
the pressures he had, you know, he got so him and his dad were estranged for years and years and years. I don't know if they've come back together ever. Steffi Graf had the same problem with her, her father. You know, these parents that put so much pressure on their kids to excel in sports. Uh, all you got to do is go down and watch a Pee League football game and watch sometimes the coach rag on these, you know, 10-year-old, 12-year-old kids, you know, as if they are in the NFL. And they, they think they're new, Rodney, the new head coach. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's a little bit embarrassing and sad. Social media, which is compounding the problem. Uh, one of my big efforts through lieutenant governor and governor was to put more counselors in school. The first line of defense to have your children be healthy is the parents. My wife's initiative uh, was a great initiative, and, and I hope people continue to talk about this, is parenting. You know, I have six kids. None of them came with any instructions. Uh, we had to learn on the way what we learned from our parents, uh, maybe our religious leaders, etc. But there's not really a, a good manual on how to parent. There's, there's books out there you can read. But Jeanette said, let's start talking about parenting. If we get the parenting right, the rising generation is going to be fine. So that's the first place. The second place is when you go to school, you know, there ought to be better counselors. We are woefully short of counselors. We finally, my last two years as governor, we got, uh, I think, 25 and $30 million, respectively, put into counseling where, where the counselors are there not only to just see how you're doing on your academics and help you find a pathway to post-high school education into college and, and a career path, which is very, very important. It's also say, how are you doing? How's your association with your, with your classmates? How are you doing at home? How's your mental health, you know, and, and and check in to see that they're happy. If they're not, find out why and see if we can help them. Uh, more emphasis now on mental health than ever before, and it's probably way past time. I think that's good. One last story I'll tell you. I wish I could think of the guy's name. He died here a few years, a couple of three years ago. He was a guy from Pleasant Grove. He'd go around the state and, and the Intermountain area and other places in America and lecture on the problems of social media. And we all know cyberbullying, things that happen with the Internet, which are just so disappointing. And it causes a lot of grief to people. And he would go give these lectures at the high school juniors and seniors, and then they'd write him letters. And he said, I got a letter from this one young lady who said, I'm feeling suicidal. I just don't like my life. Uh, it's not enjoyable. I go to school. It's not fun. Uh, you know, and, and I just feel like I need to end it all. Well, he ended up meeting with her and to his great surprise, found out she was the head cheerleader at her high school. Now you think the head cheerleader, you know, is that a pretty prestigious position? The accolades of your peers and being able to cheer on your school and everything. And she's suicidal. And he said to her, let me give you a suggestion after you talk with her for a while. Let me have you get off of social media. No more social media for the next four weeks. And let's see what that does for your uh, self-awareness uh, and, and your, your self-appreciation. Uh, and she had a complete change of heart. The best thing she said I ever did was get off social media. 
They have to worry about some of the things people said, the mean-spirited and the personalized things and the cyberbullying, and recognize that I had a pretty good life. And uh, we, we see so much of that with social media. I see where Governor Cox is now taking issue with some of our social media platforms and say, we're going to sue you. Uh, you know, you, what you're doing to our young, rising generation, our young people, is unconscionable. And it probably is. Again, the way we fix that really is go back to the parents. What can we do to make sure that the parents are there? We have a stable family life that teaches good principles and values to their children. That's the most important thing. We see across the country, and I think you're going to attribute it to the breakdown of the family unit uh, to find our, our children are suffering because of it and are not getting good direction. There's, there's uncertainty. They don't know what what uh, uh, to follow anymore. They're not getting taught that at home, and we, we're becoming a less religious society, meaning a less participation in, in uh, some kind of denomination, religious worship, which gives us all, no matter what the religion is, gives us some focus of what are good values and good things for you to have as your own personal characteristics. Um, I spoke once to uh, in Washington, D.C. with a group and uh, on this very issue, and they said, Gary, what our studies show us, we can tell you four or five things. If you'll do these things, uh, if, our, if our young people do these things, they will have a successful life, and virtually none of them will be impoverished. I said, what are the things? He said, one, get a good education. Graduate from high school and go on and get some post-high school education. That's number one. Uh, number two is to get a job. Use that education to get a job. Number three is get married. Marriage is an important aspect of association. And they said marriage is a stabilizing factor where you commit to each other. And, and more and more people are not doing that. And it's almost like, well, if you, you get crossways with me, I'll find somebody else. I can go to the internet and take a, an app and find somebody just as pretty as you. And, you know, people aren't committing. So one, get an education, post-education. Two, get a job. Three, get married. And four, have children. And then they say, in that order. In that order. Unfortunately, we have too many, particularly some of our inner city uh, folks and minority groups, for whatever reason. Either there's not a father in the home, they weren't taught differently, not going to church, not being taught these principles at home. But we have a very high illegitimacy birth rate in our inner cities. You know, it's approaching 70%. And we wonder why we're having problems with society. That is part of the problem. So get a good education, get a job, get married, and then have children. In that order, that almost assures and guarantees you that you'll never be impoverished and uh, you'll have a good life. Mm. That's powerful. That's great advice. Thank you. I have a, I have a question, Governor. First of all, to congratulate you, you've probably had this a lot, but many people who analyze post-COVID how states did have ranked <laughs> Utah as being one of the best, most successful states to navigate that very, very complicated time. And and I, it was a time when all of us remember there were just so many voices, so many opinions. And 
And I think sometimes this question, I'm thinking of coaches, the answer, though, it'll be as a governor, apply to coaches where, you know, you have parents talking to you, you have, you have your players talking to you, you have fans and opinions and administrators and everything else. You seem to navigate that very complicated time very well. And I'm wondering, when you're in a position with so many voices coming at you that are contradictory, how how is it that you navigate that and that you try to pay attention to either the voices that matter or the principles that matter? How did how did you govern that time when there was just so many varying opinions so well? Well, it's not by happenstance. I mean, we actually had a plan and we had a goal and, and developed a plan to achieve the goal, which was we said in the very outset, which other states did not do, we said, we want to protect your health and your livelihood. We know that those are tied together. And so we didn't want to jeopardize your health. We also didn't want to have you be unemployed and have the economy tank either. So the, the best thing I ever did when I was governor was I surrounded myself with really smart people, uh, a lot smarter than me and ex expertise in a variety of different um, areas of need. And so my senior staff, my cabinet members, brilliant people. So when we have a crisis, it doesn't matter what it was, we had a crisis when I came into office. We were in the depths of the Great Recession, and the economy was bad. We are uh, approaching double-digit unemployment rates. Foreclosures were up. I mean, it just all kinds of problems. So we said, what's the goal? And the old Steve Covey again, start with the end in mind and then figure out how we're going to get from here to there. We put together a plan and set a goal to become the best performing economy in America. And people laughed. I mean, people literally laughed. <laughs> New guy on the job. What a crazy man. You know, the small state here and nestled at the foot of the Rocky Mountains. And you're going to become the best performing economy in America. Uh, well, five years later, we did it. We actually achieved that. And we're still there. Uh, it's a long-lasting thing, what we've done, and it's just a, a joy to see happen. Well, the same thing happened. All of a sudden, we have another crisis here with COVID-19. Nobody knows much about it, you know, and we hit it. It came about the first part of March. So, you know, almost, you know, what, 2000, uh, 2020, rather, and, uh, and what, three years ago, almost to the day here now. Mm -hmm. uh, and... Um, we had a, a wake-up call, and we ended up having to uh, – teachers didn't want to teach, didn't want to go to school. Uh, you know, it was hard on the, the seniors that year because we ended up having to suspend the schools. But we did come up with a plan. We actually got all the smartest people we knew in business and in health and said, let's develop a Utah plan. And that was a plan that we not only used – uh, we're the only state in America, probably the first ones in America, to have a written plan how to address COVID-19, uh, but also it was able to be modified. And as we learned more, we did changed and, and made some uh, uh, modifications to the plan. Um, it, I, people ask me all the time, if you had it to do over again, would you do the same thing? And I've said the answer to that question is, do I know what I know now? When I go back and do it again, or do I have to go with the same information I had before? Because if it's the same information I had before, I'll do the same thing. We did the best we could with the information at hand. 
and a lot of nuances out there and not everybody had all the information they needed to have. And, uh, and we ha end up having to react. We're worried about running out of supplies. We paid more money than we needed to for supplies, but we got them. We shipped them from around the world to get into Utah. So we didn't have a shortage. We had public that panicked. I mean, if you can imagine, I, I never did quite understand the logic on this. Uh, people had would go to the store and they'd buy all kinds of toilet paper. <laughs> you know, okay, we're sick. Uh, we've got COVID, but I don't think it's going to make us go to the bathroom that much more often. <laughs> stockpiling toilet paper. You know, and then they started stockpiling buying water. I'm thinking the faucets still work. We still have reservoirs with water in our, our water system. Just turn on the tap. Get, why are we stockpiling water? But it just showed kind of the panic mode that people w were into. And hence, that's why we went on. I had a press conference every day for a long while. I, I assigned the lieutenant governor to help run a, a task force. So we got input from all those who were knowledgeable and got the best information we could at the time. And we addressed it in a significantly good way. We came back. We, we again, worked with the Chambers of Commerce, uh, working with Intermount Healthcare and other uh, healthcare associations, the University of Utah and their healthcare professionals. Uh, and we understood as regional what's happening on the Wasatch Front is not necessarily what's happening in rural Utah. So we tried to make some allowances and not be punitive in closing everything down. Uh, we had to make some, some uh, changes. We had our young people wear masks, which we had parents and some uh, uh, more on the ultra right wing just got, how dare you, you know, have us, our children wear masks. They defied it. And uh, it was really became ugly. I got a lot of really nasty letters from people that I think were just a little bit off of plumb, uh, their bubble a little bit far to the left or right. And and one day, in fact, a couple of times, we had protesters in my personal residence in Orem, not the mansion where I was at, not the Capitol, but my personal home disrupting my neighbors. And people are there packing guns and automatic weapons. And I think, why? Well, what's, what's that for? You're going to shoot us? You know, and uh, my neighbor came out and had one lady was yelling at a bullhorn at my house in Orem. And he walked out and he slided up alongside her and said, ma'am, you know that nobody's home, right? <laughs> you know, my house. But I mean, people became almost, you know, uh, either panic mode, irrational, you know, kind of silly in some of their approaches. But we couldn't get the teachers to go back and teach if they didn't feel like the classroom was safe. So we end up doing a compromise, say, okay, we hit, we'll put protocol in place. And the, the schools end up becoming one of the safest places to be during the pandemic for the children and for the teachers. And the end result, as you've already said, is that we've ended up having many publications. Um, Wall Street Journal put it on the front page and university studies and Glenn Beck you know, uh, who's a libertarian on the right side of the political spectrum, all come out and said the state that handled the pandemic the best of all 50 was Utah. Uh, and and we did. We, we did a pretty good job of kind of threading the needle and saying we're not going to close the economy. We're going to protect your health and do some things. We're going to have to work together on this thing. And and most people did. But some people didn't. Uh, I'll just, we, I went to a store that, 
was famous for selling, all they do is sell meat, really great cuts of meat. And uh, they, as a private owner, said, anybody comes in our store needs to wear a mask. If you don't wear a mask, we're not going to let you in the store. Well, some people went down there purposely just to, to try to walk into their store and not wear a mask. Why? It just caused grief and disruption and anger and, you know, just to show, well, you're not going to push me around. Well, it's his store. He can he can have the requirements on his private property, whatever he wants to have. That's his constitutional right. You don't have to go there, buy your meat, but you have no right to come in there. They had to call the cops and escort him off their premises. That's a bad attitude. The good thing for Utah is most people had a good attitude and say, what can we do to help be part of the solution and not be part of the problem? Maybe there's some inconvenience here, but so what? If it makes the other people feel more safe and comfortable, if I wear a mask, I'm going to wear a mask to show my respect. When all the churches came together and actually issued a statement of that very thing and say, you know, treat your neighbor as yourself, be kind, be, be uh, considerate, and, and, and wear the mask or social distance and see if we can't get through this together. And we did. We did very good at it. And that's a tribute to the people, a tribute to the process we went through. Uh, we made some mistakes and stumbles along the way, yes. We do it different than what we know now. But knowing then what we knew, you know, we, we did the best we could with what we had on hand. And uh, as we've seen from the publications post, you know, uh, uh, look back and see what we did. Uh, by far, Utah has been named the number one state in handling COVID in 2020 than any other state in America. I'm grateful for that, grateful for the people of Utah and what they did to help make that to happen. Well, Governor, we appreciate you, and maybe we'll end on that. We, uh, we, we're glad you're busy. We hope you'll stay busy and stay involved in helping our state. I uh, have grown up here and think it's the greatest state in the country and our motto of of eyes up do the work that's the motto that our this program's built around it's the wristbands that thousands and thousands of kids and we get similar emails that you refer to we get emails from kids and parents that are struggling um adults all ages and we refer back to keep your eyes up keep your eyes up and do the work and eyes up means a lot of things i think in this examples you just shared about the covid crisis here that you and the people around you had your eyes up. You stayed focused on what was in front of you and what the next thing was. And then you found people that were that were committed to doing the work, to doing what was necessary to, to get our people back uh, and, and make sure that they were happy. And, and we appreciate you doing that because we know that wasn't the case in a lot of states. So thank you for that. Well, thank you. And, and I'll just say, you know, we think eyes up. It does have a, probably a lot of different connotations you could ascribe to it. But I hope that we as a people, not only as uh, Utahns, but as Americans, recognize a number of things. You've talked about we have more in common than we have in difference. That's true. We're all the same race. We're all part of the human race. We might have different colors of pigment on our skin, but we're all Americans here in, in the United States, and we're all members of the human race around the world. And so we have a lot of things in common. We ought to look to see what we can do together to improve the lot of people's lives. And certainly as we have our eyes upward, uh, you know, it reminds me that we ought to all, and I am a man of faith, and most people are, but if you're just a man of, I believe nature's done it, thank nature, thank God 
that we have the blessings that we have here in this great country, in this great state. The blessings of freedom, freedom of speech. I mean, we see what's happening in other parts of the country right now with France now trying to say you can't pick it. You can't have freedom of speech. And, and uh, you know, that's we have such a good way of life here in America if we don't squander it. And so let's spend a little extra time on our knees. Uh, my dad had a great saying that he taught me when I was playing Little League Baseball. He was the coach. And he brought the team together, and he says, I believe in prayer. So before every game, we're going to have a prayer. And uh, we had a prayer, and it was mainly about uh, hopefully we'll play well, we'll be protected from harm or danger, that we'll have fun, we'll respect our opponents, and we'll have a good time playing baseball. I love baseball. And uh, he, he said, my saying is, let's pray like everything depends on the Lord. Let's get out and work now like everything depends on us. And that's the way we ought to treat things. Let's get on our knees, spend a extra time, say, God, to help us. We thank you for our blessings. We've been blessed beyond what we probably deserve. But we're going to go out now and work as hard as we can to make it even better. And if we do that, our state's going to be in great shape. And our country's going to be in great shape. Amen. Eyes up. Eyes up. And go out and do the work. We appreciate you. Governor, have a great day and uh, tell your wife we appreciate her as well. We need more people like you. Well, thank you. We need people like you too. So, well, uh, we're trying. Talking about sports, it all is about team. Acronym T E A M, I've used when I first came on board, was together everyone achieves more. Team. And everybody has a role and a spot on the team. They're not the same, but they're all equally important. My role is mm -hmm. more than your role. And if the team works together, we can advance that football down the field. We'll score some touchdowns. It's, yep. a, it's, a, it's a true concept, true principle. Yep. Hmm. So awesome. we need more, yeah. more teams like you guys. Wow, Dustin, what a great conversation with Governor Herbert. Just such powerful insights from someone who's experienced things and made decisions that we've never had to, had to make and just a lot of wisdom there. What were your thoughts to close up? Well, there's only 50 of them, right, at any given point moment in the uh, in the country, 50 governors of the United States, and to have one that was one of the best that we've ever had, really, in his time in office, go look at this, the numbers, the state of Utah is just under his leadership just thrived, and he, and he led during some unbelievably tough times as well. So to be able to have him spend as much time as he did with us, it's a little bit longer uh, podcast today. Um, it was awesome. I'm glad that we were able to, I hope everybody stayed and listened to the whole thing because there was some great bit of information in there. It's going to be going to be one we probably refer to in the future. Awesome. Well, everyone, thank you for joining us. That was an awesome experience. We appreciate you joining the Sportlight Podcast. Like it, share it. This was a unique episode. Maybe there's some people who would be interested in this one that aren't interested in the typical ones. So, so share it with them. Let them listen to the great wisdom of Governor Herbert and Keep your eyes up and do the work. This has been the Sportlight Podcast from Especially for Athletes, sponsored by Coca-Cola. You can learn more about Especially for Athletes by visiting the website at especiallyforathletes.org. You can also learn more about the book, The Sportlight, by Shad Martin and Dustin Smith at especiallyforathletes.org slash book.